so if, if you were here on Friday night, we had the King's Brass, and it was a whole lot different than that. And uh, they were fantastic. If you were here, Tim Zimmerman and the others, they've played these instruments uh, forever. And so all these brass instruments, again, your lips buzz to be able to play them. And so that brass instrument is a trumpet, a cornet, a piccolo trumpet. Uh, you're going to have, there was different uh, trombones that were here. Uh, there's a tuba that was here. All of them uh, just making all of this beautiful music. Now, my mom's trumpet, she played it when she was in high school. So for the most part, it has gone untouched for about 25 years. Uh, and, and really, at the end of the day, those musicians that were here, now I didn't ask them to, to be dead certain of this, but most professional musicians are not playing the 2020, 2021 model of their instrument. That's really uncommon. They're actually playing, most likely, a very old instrument. Not 25 years old, but maybe 50 years or 100 years old sometimes, because there's something about that old instrument. A lot of times it just has a, a beautiful tone to it, a beautiful sound to it. And the new horn, the, the one that's, that's fresh out of the factory, sometimes plays well, but not very often, uh, that just has that same ring to it. And so most of them will be looking for something older, not old and broken down, no, something that has been put back together, restored to its original quality, or even better. You see, an instrument with a story is an instrument worth playing. An instrument with a story is an instrument worth playing. If you've got an instrument uh, that has a story with it, that has history with it, that was a Civil War era instrument or something like that, that's something that is really interesting and it's worth playing. Chuck Swindoll says this, our God is a master at turning devastation into restoration. Our God is a master at turning devastation into restoration. There's something about taking something old, something classic, something vintage, and restoring it that makes it that much better. Now, many of you have taken and gone out with your stimulus check that you got, and you, after you tithed, of course, here at the church, uh, give.randallchurch.org. After you did that, you went down and you put your down payment on your brand new vehicle because you decided uh, that that was the way that you were going to spend some of that money. Good for you. There's, there's no shame in that, but there is something really cool about something that's old and has been restored. Any, any type of vehicle. Here's an example. Let's say that you bought yourself a new Chevy Cruze or a Chevy Bolt or a Chevy Silverado truck. Uh, and, and you're in your car, you come up to a spotlight, and you're there in your Chevy, let's say you're in a Camaro, you, you're at the spotlight in your brand new Chevy Camaro, and up next to you pulls this vehicle, a 1957 Chevy. You know, it's got all the colors that you want. It's got the, the blue, uh, the, the color, of, I got to get the right color, because I know for some of you this is, it's a harbor blue, right, of the Chevy, 57 Chevy with the white walls, and when they pull up, there's like this whole different level of respect for the person who's driving that vehicle because there's such love and care that has gone into it. There's something about taking something old, it could be discarded it's so old, but taking something old and someone that has, has the vision and the patience and the long suffering that it takes to bring that vehicle back to restoration and restoring that vehicle. You see, that's what God does. God is into restoring human beings. You know, he could have made perfect people, and he could have populated all of heaven with perfect people, but he doesn't do that. He takes people who are dinged up, who are a little bit rusty, who've got a lot of damage, bruised by time, damaged by sin, having made the wrong choices. They're all weathered, and they're all scratched up, and he does a full restoration job on them, complete 
restoration. How does he do that? Well, restoration begins with redemption. Restoration begins with redemption, and redemption is tied to the resurrection. We celebrate it on Easter, and we talk about it on Easter, but it is transformational in how it will change our lives. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, we are in a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And, and if you have your Bible and you open it up today to Revelation chapter 5 and you find your way there, we're going to talk about what redemption really looks like. Now if you were here last week, my name is Pastor Milo and I preached last week and we talked about the idea that the Bible that we have in our hands today, the Bible that you and I received is not the Bible that the first century Christians Receive. The Bible that you and I receive that has commentary in the margins, that has concordances in the back, that has references all throughout, that has the words of Christ in red, that has the, the maps to supplement what's going on, that has the genuine, authentic, inauthentic leather that wraps around it. All of those things. I've been told I'm supposed to call that vegan leather now. It's vegan leather that's on our Bibles. If you have that in your hands today and you imagine the first century writers would have never imagined this to be the thing that we would be reading from all these years later in different language, in a different context because there's all of these letters that have been all kind of put together. See, those letters were written to the local church in many cases. And they're all put together and bound together in this thing that we call the Bible, all of this, this library in our hands that we call the Bible. But it's entirely different than what they were looking at. What has been canonized now is for us to be able to read and kind of see it in its full picture. So we have to kind of keep that full picture in front of us. And so we're going to go to Revelation 5 this morning. But today, basically, what we're going to see is we're going to see a vision of heaven where people and the angels, they're all gathered around and they're all singing together. They're singing this song of redemption, this song of restoration when, when the risen Jesus Christ comes to take control. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that it's a series of visions that was given to a man named John. He's one of the original apostles. So John was on this island called Patmos. We talked about that last week. It's about 25 miles off the coast of Asia Minor, and it's a prison colony. And he's been put there in prison. He's been exiled there because of his teaching and preaching about Jesus Christ. And Rome put him there to stop causing trouble after they tried to kill him and tried to boil him alive, and it didn't work, they sent him out to the island of Patmos. And John, as he is writing this letter, as he is writing the book of Revelation, he's in his 90s. He's an old man. He's an old gentleman. He's been a prisoner for a while. He's been exiled there for a while, and he's all alone. And there, all alone, he gets the words, the book, the vision that we call Revelation. Nice gift, right? Wouldn't you hope that someone would give you a gift like this, as confusing as it may be? He gets this series of visions and this prophecy about the future, but it's this peak into heaven itself. Now, to remind us about John, he's originally a fisherman. He, he lived by the lake that was north of there, northern Israel, called Galilee. It's a lake that's there, and he's part of this inner circle that Jesus called his disciples, his 12 apostles. And then within that inner circle, there's another inner circle of three, of Peter, James, and John. And they knew Jesus really, really well. They would do many things together, and they would get pulled away on special occasions with Jesus. And so we can understand that John has this very close and intimate personal relationship with Jesus when he is here in the flesh on the earth. 
And by the way, John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Isn't that beautiful? The disciple that Jesus thing is. It's, it's funny that he wrote that because it wasn't like Matthew or Peter that they wrote that and said, well, I'm the one who Jesus loved. Now, John says that he wants to put that there. But I think it's really beautiful, and it's not what my message is about this morning, but I do want to kind of point to that because you and I can actually say the same thing. We can actually say that, that I'm the one that Jesus loved, that you're the one that Jesus loved, that Jesus loves you and loves me in a very unique and beautiful way that is all about his relationship with you. And it's not the same as the person who is sitting next to you. That love is tailored just for you. I believe that. I believe some of you needed to hear that this morning, that Jesus loves you and you can say, I'm the one who Jesus loved. So John's at the end of his life. He's in his 90s, as I mentioned. You get this picture, this old man. He's completely isolated from society. He's got no Christians around him, no group uh, from the church around him. He might feel uh, depressed. He feels dejected. And as you might say, just in the nick of time, Jesus shows up to give us these visions. Now I'm drawing this out, I'm pulling this out because I've got a hunch this morning because I'm going to be speaking to some of you that are feeling isolated, you're feeling alienated, you're feeling alone, and you're feeling depressed even as you walk in this morning on a sunny day and you're here in the church with fellow believers in Christ. Why do I say that? Well, according to the Center for Disease Control, 9% of Americans in April of 2019 had feelings of hopelessness, despondency, and guilt that generates a diagnosis of depression and some even more severely. That was 9% in April of 2019. In February of 2021, the CDC put that number somewhere between 35 and 42% of Americans. Wow. Okay, so some of us are dealing with hopelessness, despondency, depression. I want to share that with you as we kind of get into this morning, because I believe that you could be on the verge of a breakthrough to be able to get on the other side of this, on the verge of one of the greatest victories that you've experienced in your life, when in this moment of alienation and isolation, that something might be revealed to you this morning, something be revealed to you through the Holy Spirit of God, hopefully here today in Revelation chapter Five. So first, let me set the scene. Revelation chapter 5, the year's around AD 95. What this means is that John has not physically been with Jesus in more than 60 years. So for three and a half years, he spends every waking hour with him as he is on earth. They hang out. They spend all this time together. John is among the people that are in that close circle. But for 60 years, he has not heard the voice of Jesus. He knows his voice. He knows the tone of his voice. He's familiar with the facial expressions that Jesus would use when he spoke. He knew the ways that Jesus, that he could maybe make Jesus laugh about something, uh, that they had an insider handshake to get into the club. He had all of those things, but he hasn't experienced any of that for more than 60 years. Maybe he's thinking back, oh, how I miss those days. Those were the days when we used to sit on the side of the Sea of Galilee, personally and together, a closeness that was there. And then one day, there on the island of Patmos, he hears a voice. 
he hears a voice, and he looks back, and he turns, and he looks back, and he sees someone. It's Jesus, but it's a very different Jesus than he expected to see when he turned and looked back. It's a different Jesus than he remembered. Sixty years have passed, so John has changed. But when John turns around, he doesn't see the Jesus that walked the earth. He sees the glorified Christ. And when he sees the glorified Christ, he tells us that his face shines like the sun and that his voice roared like mighty rushing waters. This is Jesus. And he tells John, he says, come, come and see. And we talked about this last week. And he pulls back the curtain. He opens the door to the heavenly realm. He tells John, he says, write this down. Write down everything that you see and then share it among the churches. And what's the first thing that he sees as the curtain is pulled back, as he looks into this other dimension of heaven? John is ushered into heaven's central command center. He's there in the throne room. His first glimpse of glory is the throne of heaven. The one who is sitting on the throne, tells us, resembles a precious jasper stone. The sky is covered edge to edge, corner to corner, with this beautiful rainbow all over the sky. And from the throne itself comes flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And the whole place is surging with sound. A sound of singing and the sound of music as 24 honored elders in their thrones are bowing down before the Lord, singing with all of their might. And then there's these four mighty creatures uh, that he tries to describe for us. They're flying, they're floating, they're seeing, they're, they're doing all of these things with all of their might as well. The scene is ripe with worship. So he comes into this worship scene, worshiping for the one who sits on the throne, God the Father. God the Father of the universe. And so we open Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? All right, so if I set the scene here for us, John's heart is beating out of his chest. For an old man, he might go down, guys. Like, like this is the most exciting thing he's ever said. This moment that he has spent his entire life waiting for. This scroll, the scroll that is in the right hand of the Father, the one who sits on the throne, the right hand, the hand of power, the hand of might, the hand of authority. And the scroll is not in a human hand. No, because if it was in a human hand, there could be selfish intent and selfish motives. No, this scroll is in the right hand, the pure hand, the holy hand, the complete and just right hand of the heavenly Father. And in that hand, he is holding this scroll, this scroll that really is the scroll of the history of the world. My voice is cracked. I'm so excited. The history of the world is in his hand, and he's holding it in his hand. And this document, this is like the title document. If you've sold a house recently and you're trying to look for the title to that house and figure out where is it, and you do this search, this title search, you try to find it. This is the title to the universe is in his hand. This is what he sees. And the mighty angel says, the herald of God is standing there beside the throne and he calls out, who is worthy to open 
these seals to open the scroll. At 90 years old, I believe John is giddy. He's like a child on Christmas morning who can't stand still. He's just waiting. He says, well, just let me. This is it. This is the moment. It's happening. But then something is wrong. Something is terribly wrong. If we continue on in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 3 now. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Something is wrong. John collapses. He's heartbroken. He weeps and he weeps because there is no one to be found. All of his years of abuse under Roman oppression and the Roman government who had been crushing him for preaching Jesus crucified and resurrected, all the way to that overwhelms him and he, he pours out his tears. All the stories that he's heard, all that he's read of the prophets and the pain and the suffering that they have endured in order to celebrate this very day, this very moment of what he is seeing, it seems to be lost. No one can be found to open the scroll. But it can't be. Something is wrong. You see, John would have known the words of the prophet Daniel, and he would have known them well. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, make your way back to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, because as John is seeing this unfold, he believes that he already has the script for what's about to happen. He believes he already knows what's about to happen, and something seems to be wrong. Because the prophecy of Daniel is a perfect match for what he is seeing unfold before him. Check this out. This is Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Tell me if this isn't familiar. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, they will awake. They will, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 4, but you, Daniel, what's he telling him to do? Roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. John knows these words. He knows that in Daniel's day, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had put incredible pressure on God's people, that he had raised himself up as one of the gods. But the Babylonian empire would fall. And after that, the Assyrian Empire would rise and fall. Alexander the Great would rise and fall. And even Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire, the one who is personally torturing John in these moments and exiling him to this forsaken island at Patmos, he would fall as well. The Romans would fall as well. And so when Daniel is told to roll up and seal the words of the scroll, the details 
of the timeline of the history of the world, this title document to the universe. What was he supposed to seal it up until? Until the end of time. Until the time of the end. And John believes what he is seeing is a perfect match for the end of time. But something is wrong. Something is wrong. We continue in Daniel chapter 12. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times a half of a time. When the power of the Holy Spirit has finally been broken, all of these things will be completed. Doesn't this look exactly like the sea of glass and the throne of heaven from Revelation chapter 4? Again, this picture is exactly what John, he already thinks he's seen the script to this. I've seen this before. I know what's going to happen. Verse 8. This is Daniel speaking. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all of this be? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed up until the time of the end. Now I'm grateful, I, I think that you would be too, where Daniel writes these words down that I, I so much would want to write here this morning. I heard, but I didn't understand. I'm so grateful that he writes this. I, I, I hear, I see what's, I just don't understand. I, and, and I think there are times when we look at scripture like this and we, we just say, I, I hear what you're saying, I just don't understand. And friends, when we are reading today and what scholars have poured over for years and years, centuries even, they will not always come to the same conclusion. God tells Daniel, he says, get on your way, go on, live your life, because there are the, these words and the, the full explanation of these words will remain sealed. So you're not going to figure it all out. For those of you who know the title, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is going to Come Back in 1988, he missed a couple of the reasons, and he literally re-released the book again. 1989. 89 reasons why I missed one. We don't know. And we've been told that we don't know, and we still pretend like we do. But back to Revelation 5. John is weeping. Something's wrong. He is weeping because he, he knows how the story is supposed to play out. Something is wrong because there doesn't seem to be, there isn't anyone who is worthy. There isn't anyone who is authorized to break the seal and open the scroll. It's like being at Chuck E. Cheese when you're a kid. Now stay with me. I'll, I'm going to help you through this this morning. It might be a stretch, but stay with me. Remember when you're playing the games at Chuck E. Cheese's and, and, and all those tickets spit out, all the, all the various arcade games. And those of you who are under the age of 15, which is my kids, like they've changed it. And it's all on this, this uh, swipe a card system and it's terrible. So anyway, the cards, the tickets, they start coming out. And you can ask your parents, kids, when you play whack-a-mole and you get the ticket and you get to work with a buddy and be able to knock them all down, you can really start to rack up some tickets. And then you get to the counter and you've got your tickets. And what do you see? There at the counter, 
above, up high above everything else, there is a giant stuffed teddy bear. I mean, it is enormous. And also up on that level, there's other things. There's some, like a Nintendo gaming system or a, a helicopter, a remote control helicopter or a drone or some ridiculous thing that is up there on the top shelf. And so you come to the counter and you put all of your tickets on the counter. And you say, I want, I want that teddy bear. And they say, well, son, that stuffed bear is going to require 400,000 tickets. And you've got 240. No amount of pooling tickets together. You get all your friends, well, let me have your tickets. And you say, well, let me have your tickets. And then some of you cheaters will go over to ski ball and you'll try to get as many tickets as you can out of ski ball. You're still not going to be able to get enough tickets together. You're not going to be able to get that helicopter, the stuffed bear, whatever. You're going to need to choose something else. And you, you look, well, like, what about that one? They say, well, that one's 300,000 tickets. Well, what about that one? And the next thing you know, you leave and you have a glow-in-the-dark eraser and a pencil. (laughs) Now get that picture in your mind when you come to Revelation chapter 5 because the stakes here are so much higher. On the top shelf is your eternity and my eternity in heaven. Forgiveness of sins, joy, and the end of pain, and the end of suffering. That's what's on the top shelf. And now if you'll imagine there in this scene with that on the top shelf, imagine the roll call that takes place in Revelation chapter 5. Abraham is standing there at the counter. Abraham, do you have enough tickets to go up there and to take the scroll? You are the father of the people of God. You started this whole thing off in the back. and You you were obedient and you followed God's commands. They changed your name from Abram to Abraham. Do you have enough tickets? And Abraham just looks down and says, I don't have enough tickets. Moses, you led the people of God. You led them through the promised land. You led them across the Red Sea. It was split in two. God worked in a mighty way. You've got enough tickets. Surely you do. And Moses just hangs his head and he says, no. No, I don't have enough tickets. You can go through all the prophets. These guys who literally gave their lives were killed because they proclaimed the word of God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Surely one of you guys has enough tickets. And they all look down and say, no. No, we don't have enough tickets. John the Baptist, you prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. Jesus spoke so highly of you that you said, that, that he said, uh, he, he spoke so highly that he said, there's not another man who has lived like John the Baptist. Surely you have enough. And he says, no. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. No. James, John, any of the disciples We don't have enough. Paul, you wrote half of the New Testament. You're the greatest missionary that ever lived. Surely you've got enough tickets. And Paul hangs and said, I just don't have enough tickets. Coming to the contemporary times. Mother Teresa, you you did good and you cared for so many millions of people. Surely you have enough tickets. No. Mother Teresa says no. Billy Graham, you've preached more people than anyone else in the history of the world. Surely you have enough. No, he hangs his head, and on and on. Who's got enough tickets? Who's really going to be able to approach the throne of God, take the scroll out of his hand, break the seal and open it? Is Muhammad going to do that? Is he going to walk up there and take it? Is Buddha, is he going to be able to do that? He doesn't have enough tickets either. Your new age psychic, is he or she going to be able to take that Scroll, Oprah, Dr. Phil, not enough tickets. Not enough tickets. 
and it's silent in heaven. So John weeps. Something is wrong. So I think I've established the problem. It's hopeless. It's helpless. And generation after generation, no matter how good or bad they seem to be, no matter how good or even healthy of a leader or even unhealthy of a leader they seem to be, they don't seem to have any answers to the problems of this world. We need a Savior. So let's see what happens next. See the Savior. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. See the Savior, friends. John becomes exuberant with joy. He says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. You see, John, he expected to see the lion, but when he turns around, he sees the lamb, and he sees the marks of death still on him. And these two symbols, the symbols of the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain, John sees this uniting of the entire story that's being told in Scripture, of the two themes that run throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament alike. You see, lions... They're an image and a symbol of majesty, power, ruling, and authority. Lions conquer. Lambs submit. Lions roar. But lambs die. But not in this case. The lion is the lamb. The lion of Judah is the perfect sacrifice. The lamb was slain, dripping in blood there. The atonement for the sins of all mankind. The lion is the lamb. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from what? From the right hand of him who sits on the throne. See the Savior, friends. See the Savior. The Savior, the lamb with seven horns, again representing perfect Uh, power and fullness, perfection, horns representing power. So the Lamb with ultimate and perfect power on the basis of the death that He has given takes the scroll. He is worthy. If you were here Friday night, the King's Brass took an intermission. They left, they walked out the back and came back for the second half of the concert playing a New Orleans-style funeral. Some of you were here, not many of you. Some of you, we had a funeral in this room on Saturday as well. Just as many people that came Friday night were here for a funeral on Saturday. So this room has experienced some different emotions over this weekend. But that New Orleans jazz funeral, this, this happens in New Orleans, and that was what happened. That brass bands, they'll play a dirge and walk oftentimes with a horse pulling a casket through a neighborhood. And they'll play this dirge, this sad music, and they'll invite people to come out of their homes and walk 
with the casket and walk their way to the cemetery playing a very sad song. And ask everyone to come and ask everyone to participate. But then, after the eulogy is performed there in the graveyard, and after the casket is lowered down into the ground, and after the dirt is put on the casket, the brass band will strike up an energetic song. It'll change the tune. The song changes, and they'll come back. They'll come back the same street playing music that is energetic. It's upbeat. It's high in its energy to this pace of music, creating a parade for people to join into as they return back to their homes to celebrate the life that has been lived, to be able to celebrate the time. By the time that they get back to the home where they started, there's a party going on. The tradition comes from an African-American ritual included that they intended to celebrate the newfound freedom of a departed slave. And so they would do very much the same thing. They would mourn for the loss of their dear friend, their family member, this person that they had spent their lives with that would no longer be with them. They would mourn for them. They would play that dirge as they would go through their little communities. And play this sad song that they were losing their friend. But then they would come back and they would throw a party. Because the slave had been freed. And they were not going to be there anymore. And they would play this song and throw this celebration. This is the word picture I want to give you when we look at what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. It's a response to the Lamb. They are singing a song of praise. As the band comes this morning, let's check this thing out. Look at the song they sing. They sing a new song. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So they're singing, they're praying, and they sing this new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood... You purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. They sing a new song. As we're going to come to a close today, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to this text in song. It's a song that is in a call and response mode. That means that there's someone up front that calls and you respond as well. It comes from this particular one comes from a liturgical tradition, specifically from a Kenyan liturgy. It's used to help new believers who are often unable to read or write to be able to articulate and articulate clearly and state and restate the tenets of their faith. And friends, whether you can read and write or not, we need to be able to articulate the tenets of our faith. We need to state and restate what it is that we believe again and again so that we don't lose focus. So here's what their worship service looks like. The celebrant, this is the person on the stage, says this. It says, is the Father with us? And the people respond, he is. And the celebrant says, is Christ among us? And the people respond, he is. And the celebrant says, is, is the Spirit here? And the people say, he is. The celebrant says, this is our God. And the people say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Celebrant says, we are his people. The people respond, we are his 
redeemed. If you are here this morning, if you are listening to me right now through the video stream or later you're listening to the podcast, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that the lion is the lamb? That he is the one, the only one who can break the seal and open the scroll? Isn't that wonderful news, friend? Because what is written on that scroll, if it is the history of time, you see that scroll has been sealed. That was the intention that the scroll would be sealed and it would have the king's seal. And there's only one person that would have the authority to break that seal. This scroll has seven seals. It's like having a PDF that you need to have a password to get into. This one has seven passwords. For those of you who cannot figure out what your one password is, it's the name of your dog, one, two, three. He's the only one worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. So if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, if you're listening to this podcast later, And you can't say that you've ever fully trusted Jesus Christ as the one way, the one who is able to open the scroll, that Christ alone is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Would you do that today? Would you do that today? Would you admit that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself? Would you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of the world, the one who can break the seal and open the scroll. Would you confess your sin to Him because He is faithful, amen, and just to forgive us for our sins. He's the only one able to do it. Is our world broken? Yes. Is crime a problem? Yes. Is racism a problem? Yes. Is sex trafficking a problem? Yes. Is there anyone out there? Is there anyone there who can fix this problem? Yes. He is worthy. And he will take on this restoration project that we call our world. You and me. Is he worthy? He is.